Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. The Guardian. The thing is that under apartheid, opera was subsidized by the apartheid government heavily for white people by white people. And so the writing was very much on the wall immediately post-democracy. Do we have a future in the new South Africa? Is this in any way relevant to the 80% black majority of the country? Shirley Apthorpe is a journalist who reviews music from around the world for several publications, including the Financial Times. Music is not simply a way to earn a living for Shirley, but more importantly, it's a tool she uses to help change lives in South Africa. I've always had this idea of an act of music theatre as being the necessary culmination of any workshop process or any educational initiative. Shirley was born in Cape Town, but when she was just two years old, she moved with her family to Australia. Since then, she's lived in places all over the world, but it was her time in Venezuela that inspired her to set up Mkulo, an organisation that aims to support social change through music in South Africa. It's real. These are kids who have so much joy in their music making and who wouldn't have access to it without truckloads of government subsidy. It was a very intriguing uh, discovery for me. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. I'm Lucy Lamble. So you studied music theory and the violin at the University of Tasmania, which must be an experience in itself. Um, But then in your 20s, you began to work as a music critic for the regional and then the national press. That's right, yes. I I love the violin. I still play the violin, but I can't say... In the 1990s, Shirley was awarded a Churchill Fellowship and an Australian Council grant, which allowed her to study music journalism in Europe. So she relocated to Berlin. One day she was contacted by a friend who suggested she travel to Venezuela, as something amazing was happening out there. It was this and an inspiring grandmother that encouraged her to go and check it out. The Black Sash was an organisation founded, co-founded by my grandmother, which was Women Against Apartheid. Um, And one of my earliest memories is of a picnic my grandmother took me to as a must have been about four years old, I suppose, and the women all started to sing. I think that moment has stayed with me all my life Um, and there's always been a strong belief in social justice in my family culture that I would say has always been slightly at odds with my passion for opera and so I was very drawn to the whole notion of what they were doing in Venezuela when I heard about it. And I saw this extraordinary system of music as a tool for social 
development being um, really music for children who live in communities below the poverty line, music uh, being taken into context where violence is prevalent. And it absolutely blew my mind. I was in the middle of the Amazonian jungle and trailed after some kids who had instruments on their back and landed up in a music school where they were playing Beethoven and Mahler. And it's real. These are kids who have so much joy in their music making and who wouldn't have access to it without truckloads of government subsidy. It was a very intriguing uh, discovery for me. Could you just explain what El Sistema is? How does it work? El Sistema was founded by a man called Jose Antonio Abreu, who was an economist and a politician and an organist. When he started, there was one symphony orchestra in Venezuela. And today the country has 130 symphony orchestras. But it's basically a national system of music education that uh, has grown up in Venezuela over the past 30 years. It is a principle... After leaving Venezuela, Shirley started the long road to taking the El Sistema idea and shaping it to fit the South African context. I went back to South Africa for the first time as an adult in 1994, very shortly after the first elections, and I saw what was happening in the opera world in South Africa, which was that the opera companies understood that they could tap into the black networks of choral tradition, of choral singing. The thing is that under apartheid, opera was subsidised by the apartheid government heavily for white people by white people. And so the writing was very much on the wall immediately post-democracy. Do we have a future in the new South Africa? Is this in any way relevant to the 80% black majority of the country? And for me, the challenge was watching the opera world evolve in democratic South Africa and feeling challenged. Despite her strong curiosity about how to change the opera culture in South Africa, it was a personal loss that pushed her to do something about it herself. To be honest, I would think when I saw productions in South Africa, but why aren't they doing this and they could do this and why isn't someone? And all, every time I thought, why isn't someone? I thought, hmm, dare I do this? And at the time, I was happily married in Berlin to a German lawyer. And I thought to do that would be to give up my life as I know it. It's too big a challenge. The tipping point was when my husband died of cancer. Um, He had a brain tumour and he died at the age of 39. And I thought, now you have no excuse. There's just no reason. You've got nothing left to lose. Something like that makes you very aware of your own mortality. And I thought, do I want to reach the end of my life thinking, what would have happened if I had tried that? After deciding to embark on this project, Shirley spent about a year travelling around South Africa talking to people and hearing the challenges they face when trying to spread the joy of opera to those who haven't already experienced it. And for a while I also thought, oh, we can introduce El Sistema in South Africa because it's so wonderful. And that was that was my biggest moment of ridiculous naivety. Um, living in the middle of Europe, I'm in a context where people think, oh, international, fantastic. And I completely 
overlooked the colonial baggage of South Africa, which is a country where people are so sick of people swanning in from overseas and saying, let me show you how to do it better. So that was a bit of a baptism of fire as I learnt through trial and error that, that going to South Africa and saying you should do it the way Venezuelans do it was, was really not a great call. In 2010, then you set up Unkulo. Am I pronouncing it correctly? It's a tricky one. So Unkulo is a Oza word, which uh, means art music. It means music that you practice hard to do really well, refined music. One of the hopes for the project was that it would bring together several elements of musical performance, such as instruments and dancing, to young people from disadvantaged areas. I very much believe in music theatre as a complete art form. Um, Concerts are wonderful, but when the drama is acted out, when the whole body is involved, it becomes a far more engrossing experience. And if you ask a black South African child to sing, they won't stand still. And just as, as storytelling is inextricably linked with the performing arts in the black communities. So for me, anything less than full-blown music theatre, it's less than these people deserve and less than they know. I believe in opera as what uh, in the 70s in Germany they talked about, der singende Mensch auf die Bühne, a person, a live person singing on the stage, being together in a room with something that's really happening. I've always had this idea of an act of music theatre as being the necessary culmination of any workshop process or any educational initiative. After the break, we'll take a closer look at one particular performance put together by members of the group, Purcell's Fairy Queen. The first step when we're training the young people to be opera performers is this thing of taking your place on the stage, adopting a character and taking that space and standing there as a person on the stage. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Happiness means something different to all of us. Maybe it's the contentment of sitting by the fire with a loved one, that warm, fuzzy feeling after a night in with your friends, or laughing hysterically at your mate's idiocy. We all have an understanding of what it is to be happy. But what does science say about happiness and the brain? I think it would be now impossible to take a snapshot of the brain any one time and say, this is what happiness looks like. For example, I use is like showing them a picture of a carrot and the bit of the brain lights up and you say, oh, that's the carrot centre of the brain because that bit lit up and showing them a carrot. It, it isn't ever that simple, that straightforward. And is there a dark side to happiness? That pursuit of happiness in and of itself, if we try too hard, may actually backfire and set us up to be less happy and even at increased risk for symptoms of depression and other mood disorders. Join me, Nicola Davis, for Science Weekly. Just search for Science Weekly in your favourite podcast app or head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to Small Changes. I'm Lucy Lamble. Before the break, we met Shirley Apthorpe, 
a music journalist who set up an organisation that brings together members of disadvantaged communities to put on spectacular musical performances. So for instance, when we did Purcell's Fairy Queen, we decided to look at gender and identity. Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen was composed in the late 1600s, and it's based loosely on William Shakespeare's comedy A Midsummer Night's Dream. I was curious to know how the team made a concept set hundreds of years ago fit with South African culture today. We felt it was perfect and it was one of the reasons we chose it, not least because it isn't actually an opera, it's a mask. And you can't do it the way Purcell wrote it. It simply doesn't work today. It would be five and a half hours long and it involves a cast of squillions of actors as well as singers. Um, so we, we thought we can do our own version, which nobody will be able to say, oh, why did you miss out the essential aria of the second act? So you have a lot of freedom to, to chop and change. You have to make a version. I was struck by how powerful and sexy the production was. It's set in a shabina, a township bar, and the community act out the chorus. It's a really dynamic watch. The first thing that happens is the drunken poet in the opera is rejected by the fairies in the opera or the community in our case because he's a poet and he's drunk. And for us it was about what happens when you no longer fit in. What happens if you're rejected by the community? What happens if you're different? Being gay was something we wanted to examine because the South African constitution is incredibly progressive and there's uh, equality in marriage and adoption and all kinds of legal levels for people to make their own choices about whom they marry. But in the uh, community, young people are getting murdered by other young people for being gay. The brutality is off the scale. It's, it's very extreme and it's a taboo subject. You don't talk about it. And what we found more and more as we worked is that everyone in the community understands that the stage is a safe space, that theatre is a place where you can talk about subjects that you can't talk about in ordinary life. For these performers, it wasn't as easy as simply learning lines. So our process of making this with the young people was incredibly eye-opening on both sides. We had a lot of talks. In the, the first step when we're training the young people to be opera performers is this thing of taking your place on the stage, adopting a character and taking that space and standing there as a person on the stage. None of them could do it at the beginning because they would stand in a clump. They have a sense of we but not of I. Um, and, and evolving this self-assurance and the ability to say, I stand here and tell my story, was, was a, a huge first step. The Fairy Queen was not the programme's only production, but many of those who featured in that performance were instrumental in future stage endeavours. I'm very proud of the work we did with them on gender and identity and we can see the impact of that on their lives today uh, um, in, in very good ways. The fact that we were able to talk about things that are not generally talked about, a shift in attitudes. One of the young men um, went on to be a major protagonist in the next opera where they co-created the work itself and he uh, has now qualified as a teacher and comes back to us to run education workshops for other children. And that, that kind of um, long-term impact, it may makes it all seem worthwhile. What are you working on right now? Uh, I'm about to fly back to Johannesburg where we're developing a new chamber opera which also looks at gender and identity, uh, this time in downtown Johannesburg in Hil Hilbrow, which is a very 
grungy, exciting, multicultural part of town. The rhythm of Hillbrow is like no other in South Africa. Throbbing at the heart of the country's largest city, one of the most densely populated five square miles in the world. The soaring apartment blocks, the bustle in the streets, a magnet for the newly arrived immigrant, the homeless and the lonely. It's certainly an area with a lot of crime, but it's also an area with incredibly vibrant daily life and uh, wonderful schools and very interesting characters. And there we're collaborating with a local youth theatre company to make a chamber opera, which we called Romeo's Passion. And that is a coming out story that's also about family and about family tensions and about life expectations and being different. And another production you've been involved in is, is the St John's Passion. Yes, we've just finished a, a, a wildly insane venture in Soweto, which we uh, involved a whole bunch of different community choirs. We brought them together to sing Bach's St. John Passion, and again at the instigation of a community member. So there was uh, an elder from the Seventh-day Adventist church in Meadowlands who's crazy about Bach, and his dream was to bring Bach to Soweto. Um, and he was a key person in our doing this production with uh, a deep involvement with the local community, with uh, singers from other provinces who all came together um, with projections and performance and we had surtitles. We always do surtitles in local language so we probably were the first Bach St John's Passion with Zulu surtitles and it was such an amazing thing. It nearly killed us but uh, it was such an extraordinary thing to do this with the community who who so bought into it and you know one unexpected fringe benefit was that the, the, the kindergarten children from over the road kept sneaking into rehearsals and as we left they were all running around the car park singing great stretches of Bach St John's Passion in German. <laughs> Shirley's work hasn't been able to escape the burden that so many theatre companies face a severe lack of funding. The money has been a very hard part. At the beginning, we had none at all. Um, then a lot of kind friends chipped in and gave us a little. And we've been running on generous funding from two foundations, the Hilti Foundation and the Maria Marina Foundation, both in Liechtenstein. Um, we're very fortunate that those are foundations which believe in social change through the arts. But that funding runs out at the end of this year. So we are kind of back to square one in terms of working out how we continue, although at least now we have a huge body of work. So with anyone out there who might have the same passion as you do, but is actually starting out from scratch, what advice would you give them? I think listen, 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 listen. And be aware of the fact that you will need for the goalposts to shift. And I've learned so much about colonialism and how people feel about white Europeans who come in with good intentions. You know, there's a wonderful Instagram account, which I'm sure you've seen, called White Saviour Barbie. Um, and I'm I'm constantly aware of trying not to be that person. And I'm, you know, more than anything else, I've always, my goal has always been to make myself redundant. Um, now, 10 years down the track, we have such a fantastic team of local people who we've been training up. The, the less I'm needed there, the more I will have succeeded. And um, my advice to anyone who wants to do it is, you know, imagine yourself out of the picture right from the start, because if you can succeed in painting yourself out completely, then you will have succeeded. Shelley Applehort, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 
We'll have a link to more of the brilliant video performances in this week's Small Changes launch page on The Guardian website. If you liked this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and drop me a line at podcasts at theguardian.com. Small Changes is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Lucy Lamble. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs>